Um, I have, uh, by the way, if you haven't yet gone upstairs and, and seen all of the, the new paint and the decluttering, all of the stuff that's gone upstairs, on upstairs in the children's ministry rooms, you need to make a trip up. It, it, it's worth it. And uh, so thankful to, to Melissa and to Rhonda and to Ashley for all of the hard work. And I can't forget their kids. They were right there plugging in with them, and, and we appreciate that. But all of that to say I'm so excited about our upcoming children's ministry that's going to launch on September the 5th. And in your bulletin, you have an insert. And it's important enough, I'm going to go over it with you because I believe that our children are worth investing in. Amen? And we want to see our children's ministry grow and flourish and just uh, impact our children uh, for time and eternity. I've shared this with you before, but I read a couple of years ago, actually three or four years ago now, that if a child is not, has not made a commitment to the Lord Jesus by the age of 18, there's less than a 4% chance that they will ever make that decision. We need to invest in our kids. And I, I, I think that one of the things that's so important is that we as a church family take steps of faith. Now, obviously, you understand that painting and painting supplies and all the stuff to launch a new ministry require finance. So what I'm asking of you, this church family this morning, is we are launching a Trinity Kids fundraiser. And by the way, if you haven't heard this already, the word kids stands for Kids in Divine Service. I love that. Kids in Divine Service. And, and we're going to launch a fundraiser. This isn't a huge fundraiser, but we're going to try and raise $1,000 over the next several weeks. Next week, we're going to have a, a poster back there in the back and, and a place to contribute, and you'll be able to monitor the progress of this fundraiser. But we want to offset the costs of all the paint, the painting supplies, all of the new stuff that Melissa has prepared for uh, her new superheroes of the Bible theme. And it's going to be a great day. September the 5th, we want every one of you to come and help us with what we're calling an open house for our new children's ministry. Uh, when, when we launch that on September 5th, we're asking the families of all the kids who have pri- previously attended Discovery Kids to come and, and to just check us out. Uh, check out where their kids are being taught upstairs, and we're going to have a meal for them. We're going to worship together. Uh, they're going to get a sample of what of some of the lessons that our teachers are teaching the kids. But most importantly, we want you here so that we can meet and engage with and connect with some of those families. So put that down on your calendar if you haven't already. September the 5th, it's going to start at 6 o'clock on Wednesday evening. And uh, we have some great things planned for the upcoming uh, Trinity Kids for the school year this year. And you'll want to be part of it. But again, starting next week. Actually, we'll take, it. We'll take your money this week. But next week, you'll be able to monitor the progress of our fundraiser. $1,000. How many of you think we can reach that? That's not a big step of faith. We serve a big God. And so, want to put our faith to action. We want to show our kids that we value them, that we want to invest in them. So take that little yellow flyer and your bulletin home with you. Pray about it and see what God would have you do and to enable you to do 
for this very important step. Ushers, would you come please? Ushers and usher it. I also failed to mention that we have a couple of prayer pillows up here, so sometime between now and, and when you leave today, uh, we have a prayer pillow, obviously, for Ron and Carol Peterson. Every knot that's tied signifies a prayer that has gone up from this church family for them. And we also have a prayer pillow for a little four-year-old guy named Owen, who is experiencing a lot of, experiencing a lot of serious health issues, and Tim and Jamie have asked that we we pray for him as well. So be mindful of that. And I also forgot to tell you, uh, before we went to the Lord in prayer, Gary Salaska lost his uncle this week in Denver. Uh, that's where Gary's at. And, and so we need to pray for their entire family as they get ready to make plans and arrangements for the passing of his uncle. You can be seated. Um, I firmly believe that God places within his church body everything that is needed for that church body to do the work of the Lord. Do you believe that? I, I don't believe we necessarily need to go outside of the church and, and bring somebody in, in, although I'm really glad that you did that with me and Brenda. Uh, <laughs> but we're a part of you now. And so, so as, as part of, uh, of uh, our church family being involved in ministry, I want to introduce you to this, this morning to our new youth person, youth director, Caleb Dover, thank you for making yourself available. And uh, Caleb, my heart goes out to you because I know you've got to have some anxiety about all of this. <laughs> hey, the Lord is your strength. Just follow his leading, and I know you're going to do a great job. Oh, when, when they came back from camp on fire like that, I, it, the Lord just confirmed to my heart, God's got the person right here. And Caleb's going to do a great job. So he needs your prayers. He needs your support. And, and I, I sincerely mean that. We want to not only support our children, but we want to support our youth. And so uh, just pray for him daily. Pray for our youth ministry. I, I just like what God's doing in our midst. Melissa's doing such a great job and so excited about what's get all, what all is getting ready to take place. We are in part six of our sermon series this morning. Uh, I'm not even sure that you need to go to my initial scripture reference this morning because it's so short, I can, by the time you get there, I'm already going to be done with it. But the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 7, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. The songs that we sang this morning, all were designed to point toward this journey, this, this race, if you will, that God has called each of us to run. Um, none of our journeys are the same. Uh, have you ever wished you had somebody else's journey because their journey seems to be a little, have a few less heartbreak hills in it, you know, than yours? But God has called each of us to be faithful to the race that he has called us to. And when we stand before him, I'm not going to be judged about how good I did with Michael's race. I'm not going to be judged how good I did with Nancy's race or, or Dana's race. I'm going to be evaluated for how well I ran the race that he set for me. 
And so I've entitled this, this second, excuse me, sixth message in this sermon series, Can You Only Imagine? Finishing Strong. Finishing Strong. One, Warren Buffett, the billionaire, many times over, once said it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. I would probably say it takes less than five minutes to do that. But have you ever noticed that in life, a good start isn't always enough? Now, you know me. I'm a, I'm a huge sports fan. Um, there's nothing wrong with having a good start. But a good start may not always get you to the finish line, to the winner's circle, whatever you want to call it. I, if you don't believe me, ask the Cleveland Indians. Last year in the playoffs, they went up two, to no, two games to nothing in my, against my Yankees. Best of five series, two games to nothing. Everybody was saying it's all over. But they had to play three more games. Thank the Lord my Yankees prevailed. They won. Or you can ask the 2007 New England Patriots who won all 16 regular season games and then their first three playoff games. But then came Super Bowl number 42. And that undefeated season went by the wayside as the New York Giants beat them. Or even in an isolated game. I was listening to Sports Center just a little over two weeks ago. And uh, I always listen to Sports Center as soon as the Yankees game is over so I can see how those hated Boston Red Sox are doing. And yes, you can tell Jeremy that. Um, but as I was listening, they, they were giving scores from the West Coast, which are two hours behind the other games. The Texas Rangers, any Rangers fans in the room? A couple. They were up 10-2 to two over the Oakland A's early in the game. Now, that's a big deficit to overcome. But even as SportsCenter was going on, the seventh inning came, Oakland, or excuse me, Texas was still up 10-2, to two, only to see Oakland score 10 unanswered runs and win the game 12-10. to 10. Good start, but they don't put good starts in the win column. They only put how the game ends. And, and it's not just true uh, about teams. It's also true for the athletes. You've heard the stories of, of Tiger Woods. I know Tiger's coming back now, but Tiger had a little hiccup in his career. Uh, guys like Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and Roger Clemens and Alex Rodriguez, they had these little things called performance-enhancing drugs that kind of tarnished the start that they had made to their career. And, and we can go way beyond, way beyond athletes and teams and sports. It's not limited to just that. It includes politicians. Presidential candidate back in the, I think it was the 80s, Gary Hart. Had a good start to the campaign. John Edwards had a good start to his campaign. Former President Richard Nixon was elected president, but it didn't end so well. Businessmen like 
Ken Lay of Enron, Bernie Madoff, Scott Sullivan of WorldCom, all of them had good starts and failed to finish strong. And tragically but truly, it even extends to ministry. Men of God who have, have impacted the world with the good news of, of Jesus in their preaching had great starts. But I'm sure that pastors like Marvin Gorman and Jimmy Swaggart and, and Jim Baker, many of the archbishops and priests from the, who have been accused of molestation, conspiring to cover up sexual harassment, molestation within the church. It didn't take five minutes to ruin them. It took things from the past that came out that had been kept in secret that not only tarnished their good start, in many cases, it ended what God had called them to in the way of ministry. Now, I'm going into a lot of detail here, but what I'm saying to you is there's nothing wrong with a good start, but it's often not enough to get us to the finish line. And wouldn't you know, even the Bible, even the Bible's full of stories of men who had great starts for God, but their finish wasn't quite as strong. I think of King Saul back in the Old Testament. First king of Israel, a man of God, and yet Saul's finish kind of tarnished everything that he had done prior to that. Even King David, King David's son Solomon, how many of you remember Samson? Finish wasn't quite as good as the start. Judas. Well, wow. Ananias and Sapphira. I could go on and on, but I won't. But anyway, to further my point, Dr. Robert Clinton, professor at Fuller Theological Seminary in California, did a study of leadership in the Bible and determined that only 30% of the Bible characters that we are, are told of and that we've read of in the Bible, only 30% of them finished well. Now here's the reality. It's easy for us to look down on people like that, but the, the bigger reality is this. We've all experienced the reality of good starts in our own everyday lives, but failed to finish strong. You say, how's that, Pastor? Well... How many of you have ever started a diet? How, how many of you have ever started an exercise program? Or a Bible reading program in which you're going to read through the Bible throughout the year and along about February comes Leviticus. <laughs> uh, a class in school, a project at home, a job in the church... It's easy to get out of the starting gate. You, you come out of the starting gate and you're like a, like a hungry greyhound chasing a rabbit. And before too long, you find yourself just bogged down with the circumstances, the trials, the tribulations that come with the race. The diet doesn't seem to get the desired results. The exercise stops. We fail a class. We fail to finish getting the project done that we started. 
Bills are still where we left them, unpaid. Then and there do we find out that there's nothing wrong with a good start. It just isn't enough. Trophies are not, are, are not given out to those who do not cross the finish line. No medals for who was in first at the 95-yard mark of the 100-yard dash. <laughs> it's how you finish. And for the child of God, we have to finish strong. Perhaps there was one, no one more focused on this idea of finishing the race of life and faith more than the Apostle Paul, if you'll go with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 12. Paul says to us in those first three verses, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race that lies before us. Now notice what it says next. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author, the source, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and now has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. The Apostle Paul, here and as we read earlier in his letter to Timothy, a lot of times used the analogy of a race to describe what we call the journey of faith. The church that Paul was writing to, for example, in Corinth, uh, was familiar with races because the city of Corinth had, would annually host one of the most famous of the Greek athletic events, second only to the Olympic Games that began in Athens, Greece. And, and so Paul used the fact that these were very popular uh, things for people to identify with to describe and to compare the journey of faith to athletic races. Uh, Paul uses the picture of a physical race to point to another race. And the race that he's talking about is this one. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called not just to start strong, but more importantly, to finish well. There are several things that we need to learn about this journey of faith, and I want to share five of them with you this morning. The first one is we run with a purpose. We don't run just aimlessly. Uh, very few contestants that run in, in the annual Pancake Day race here in Liberal, very few of them have a realistic chance to compete and beat some of the best world-class athletes that would compete in the Olympic Games. Do you think I'm correct in that assumption? <laughs> uh, if those runners ever chose to, that run in the Olympic Games ever chose to come to Liberal Kansas to run in our annual Pancake Day race, I'm guessing that none of our local people would probably even show up in the final results. I'm guessing that only England would have a heart attack <laughs> knowing the people that we had in our race. 
But every one of those participants in the Pancake Day race has a goal. As it stands right now, the one who posts the fastest time for running a quarter mile and flipping a pancake at least once in a skillet, their goal is to beat the race time of those who are running the same race in only England. That's the race that they are seeking to win. Now, there are other races. I can't imagine being a marathoner. 26 miles. I haven't ran 26 miles cumulatively in my life, I don't think. But there are marathoners, and they have different goals. If you watch the Boston Marathon, probably the most popular of the marathon races, uh, the runners in that, the hundreds of thousands of runners that, that enter that race, all have or not all have, but many of them have different goals. Some is just to win their age bracket. Others, it's to be in the top 100. And of course, the world-class marathoners, their goal is to to win each and every year. For still others, being in the top 500. But I'm guessing there's a large majority of those runners in the Boston Marathon that are there just to get a certificate of participation. They may not even run through the first mile marker. But they'll get a certificate saying, I ran in the Boston Marathon. But for every person, regardless of their age, their stature, their training, or their physical shape, the goal is the same. To finish whatever portion of race they have decided they want to run, and to finish it well enough, to get what their goal was in running the race. The same is true, friends, for those of us who run the race of faith for Jesus. It's not enough to start well. You have to to finish the race and finish it well. And so we're not running aimlessly. We have a goal in mind, and we sang about it this morning. It will be worth it all. When we see Jesus. Do you believe that this morning? Secondly, it re- to run the right journey of faith, it requires a proper focus, and that's to run for the prize. Here's the thing about those marathons, like the Boston Marathon. Only one man and one woman are going to win that race. Only one man and one woman. Others are going to run for notoriety, I've watched that race down through the years, and I've seen some characters in that race. I watched it one year where there were four or five guys who dressed up as the fruit of the loom guys. About 300 yards into the race, they were hanging over the fence, puking their guts out. (laughs) But they're running it for notoriety. There's no purpose in their running I saw one this last year who was running the race dressed as a smiley face. As I said, others run the race to receive a certificate of participation, and and for them that's the prize. And even in the race of life, people will run for fame, for prizes, for accolades, but we run, friends, for the prize of eternal life. Go with me to the book of Philippians chapter number 3. Philippians chapter number 3, and look what? Again, Paul says in verses 14 and 15, he says, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, all who are mature should think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you also. What that says to me is it makes all the difference in the world how we run the race. Rick Warren, who wrote the book Purpose Driven Life, former pastor of Saddleback Church in in California, once said this, and I like it. He says, when you fully comprehend that there's more to life than just here and now, and you realize that life is just preparation for eternity, you'll begin to live differently. You'll start living in light of eternity, and that will color how you handle every relationship, every task, every circumstance. Suddenly, many activities, goals, and even problems that once seemed so important will now appear trivial, petty, and unworthy of your attention. And then he goes on to say, the closer you live to God, the smaller everything else appears. When you live in the light of eternity, your values change. You use your time and money more wisely. You place a higher premium on relationships and things like character instead of fame or wealth or achievements or even fun. Your priorities become reordered. Keeping up with trends, fashions, and popular values just doesn't matter as much anymore. How many of you would say, that's true? Well, when, I, when I started focusing and seeing things as God sees them, I, my, I had to rearrange some priorities in my life. The things that once seemed important to me no longer mattered. The Apostle Paul said himself, and I mean, he said, all the, all the accomplishments that I had, he said, I was headed for the top seat in the Sanhedrin. I was educated in the finest schools of Gamaliel. I had it. I was heading for the top. But he says, you know what? Now that I've come to know Jesus, I count all of those things. And then he gets very descriptive. He says, I count all of those things but dung. They don't matter anymore. Because now I have a different purpose, a different goal. The third thing about running this journey of faith is it involves discipline and strict training. You cannot run the race of life and finish strong without being disciplined and willing to, to endure continual training. Can I just ask a question? You don't have to answer if you don't want to. How many of you have problem with discipline? Nobody. (laughs) I have a problem with disciplining myself. When I shouldn't eat any more than what I've already eaten. But it just looks so good. And I think about all those little Ethiopian kids. Somebody's got to eat it, right? Here I am, Lord. (laughs) it's a lack of discipline that that's why i look like i'm going to be giving birth anytime soon i mean lack of discipline (laughs) but this is serious business this idea of discipline For everyone who competes in strict training, just as you and I, probably none of us in this room would ever try to attempt to run the Boston Marathon without months of of training. If we're going to finish well in the spiritual race called life with Jesus, we're going to have to learn some training habits about how to live that life as well. 
It's just not going to happen naturally. Those who really are serious about, for example, again, running the Boston Marathon, they have this scientific plan. They have a very regimented diet. They have a, a, a very structured time of rest that they require on a daily basis. They, they study and, 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 and train with specific types of strength and, and cardio training. How much of it's required? I remember 50 years ago, I used to run high school track. And uh, believe it or not, back then I was a sprinter. And at the start of the race, I would feel like a million bucks. But along about the 75 or 80 yard mark of that 100 yard dash, as it was known back then, my legs started feeling like they were made out of jello, and my hamstrings would start screaming in pain. What was the problem? I needed to train for 100 yards, not 75 or 80. I needed to be trained for 100 yards, not just the part where, where I felt good enough to run. And the same thing is true in the race of faith, the spiritual life race. Often when we start down that road, at some point, we're going to encounter some pain. We're going to encounter some discomfort. We'll often say to ourselves at that point, this hurts. And if you're like me, when you start feeling that pain, you're going to say, that must mean the Lord is telling me I don't need to run this particular race. Now, come on. <laughs> Let me tell you something, friends. If God has called you to run it, he intends for you to run through the pain, the discomfort, for you to have trained yourself in utilizing the gifts of the Spirit of God that He has given to us to finish the race that He has called us to. Those of you who watch the Summer Olympics, have you ever noticed that the greatest long-distance runners in the world have what is called a kick? All of you know what the kick is? Uh, the, the kick is a technical term that means that when a runner is approaching the final 100 or 200 yards, say, of, the, of the, the mile or the 1,500 meters, that somehow when they get to that point 100 or 200 yards from the finish line, they somehow come up with the stamina that will allow them to increase their pace and, and to sprint to the finish line. No matter how much of the race has been run prior to that point, they sprint that last leg of the race to the finish line in the hope of winning. I believe that God, spiritually speaking, wants us to develop a kick. He wants us to develop a kick. In other words, no matter what the circumstances of our individual races are, he wants us to finish and finish strong. The way that we do that is by, by utilizing, and, and this is the most important thing I'm going to say to you, to utilize the dynamic of the Holy Spirit to empower us to the finish. I don't know about any of the rest of you, but when my time comes, whether it's on my deathbed or 
if Jesus comes to take me home in the clouds of glory, when I hit those pearly gates, I don't want to come scraping and clawing myself through. I want to see Jesus there and I want to, I want to develop a sprint. Because my race is done. And I want him to tell me, Terry, you made it. I don't want him to tell me that. I want him to tell me, well done. You've finished your race. Enjoy the, the rewards that I've set before you. Fourthly, it's not about winning the race. It's about how you run the race. Leonard, you have a video I want us to watch. This is as good as any illustration I could give you, so, so watch this. <laughs> Where are we? Do we have it? While he's pulling it back up, it's the story, and Steve, you probably may have even watched this. It's the story of a golfer whose name was Brian Davis. Brian Davis rolled in a clutch 18-foot putt for birdie on his final regulation hole to catch Jim Furyk. Force a playoff in the 2010 Verizon Heritage Golf Tournament in Hilton Head, South Carolina. Are we there yet? Brian Davis Golf. There you go. Brian Davis Golf. That's it. Watch this. On a integrity, back face value, there are any words.
own thing up and they have to start thinking about, oh, what that actually cost me. You know, it wouldn't have changed what I, what I decided to do, but it turned out probably to be the one, one of the best things I've done. I know that I can go to sleep every night and not worry. And that's, that's the biggest thing for me, is the fact that I did the right thing, and it's a good lesson for my kids. There's been lots of guys done it, um, but obviously because it's live on national TV, it got highlighted. But there's been plenty of golfers that have done it before, and there been plenty of golfers that do it after us as well. Honour, integrity. At face value, they are only words. But when they become actions of our own core, they reveal our true character. How you run the race. It matters. Brian Davis' penalty was probably to everyone at that tournament indiscernible, undiscernible to the naked eye. Nobody would have seen that read move. But it was clearly seen on slow motion replay. In practical terms, let me tell you what it cost him. Jim Furyk, for winning that tournament, even in that way, won $1,026,000. One tournament. Brian Davis earned, of course this wasn't too bad either, 615000 But more importantly for Brian Davis, to this day he is still seeking his first win as a professional golfer. But things like honor and integrity and character mattered more to him than the title of being a winner on the professional golf tour. It's not that you win the race. It wasn't winning a golf tournament that mattered. It's how you run it. It's how you play the game. For you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, it's not about a trophy. It's not about financial winnings. Friends, it's all about eternity. That's where our focus has to be. The Apostle Paul again put it this way in Philippians, cha- again, Philippians chapter number 3, and I'm going to go give you a little backdrop from where I started a while ago. Paul said in verse 10, My goal, my goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Being conformed to His death, I assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. And then he says it again, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already fully mature, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I've been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. And then he says, brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue As my goal, the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. The last thing about this journey of faith is it is about finishing strong. Some of you who are as old or older than I am may remember back in 1981 an Oscar-winning movie entitled Chariots of Fire. Great movie. True story of a Jewish man by the name of Eric Liddell, a man who ran for the country of Scotland and who later on in his life became a missionary. The plot of the movie centered around Liddell's refusal to run in the 1924 100-meter race uh, in the Olympics because it was being run on a Sunday 
that and that violated his religious convictions and his Christian faith. But there was another scene in that movie involving another race that took place nearly a year before those 1924 Olympics. Took place in a track meet in England, uh, between England, Ireland, and Scotland. And in that track meet, Liddell ran the 100 meters, the 200 meters, and the 400 meter events. And in the 400 meters, Liddell got off to a bad start. When the starter's gun sounded, there was a lot of shoving among the runners to get to the front so that the runners could gain inside position. They didn't do it back then like we do now and stagger the lanes to to make sure that everybody runs. You had to fight for the inside position knowing that if you got to the inside, your race was going to be shorter than the guy on the outside. So here he is, he's had a bad start, and the the pack, uh, uh, in his struggle to get to the front of the pack... Liddell tangled feet with a man whose name was J.J. Collins of England. When he got his feet tangled up, he fell to the track. He sat there, dazed, not knowing whether he could get up. And it was only when one of the track officials screamed at him to get up and run did he come to his senses and get up off the track and begin running. Well, by this time, the pack of other runners was now some 20 meters ahead of him. And in the 400 meters, that's a lot of distance to make up. But Liddell, who had this very unorthodox style of of running anyway, took off after the pack, and he pulled into fourth place. And then he pulled into third. But he was still 10 meters behind J.J. Gillies. With some 40 meters to go, He pulled into second, and then right at the tape before the finish line, Liddell stuck out his chest, edging Gillies and winning the race after having fallen down. He then fell to the track again, this time in total exhaustion. He had to have medical personnel to even assist him in getting up and getting off the track. There was an article in that next day's newspaper that said the circumstances in which Liddell won this race made it a performance that bordered on the miraculous. Veterans, many whose memories took them back 35 years in the history of athletics, and some even longer, were unanimous in the opinion that Liddell's win in the 400 meters was the greatest track performance they had ever seen. Why am I sharing that with you? Because there's something glorious about getting up off the track after you've been knocked down. Something glorious about starting to run the race again after you've had a bad start. Win or lose, you can't stay down. Some of us have been knocked down. Satan has tripped us up. Many of you, like me, have made a few... Foolish decisions along the way. Hello? Maybe somebody has wronged us. Maybe we've wronged somebody. And when we find ourselves down on the track, dazed from our fall, many of us are really concerned about one thing, how embarrassing it is that we've fallen. We may be ashamed that we we fell in the pursuit of running we're often tempted to start feeling sorry for ourselves because we got tangled up in things that caused the fall. We get depressed. 
And we sometimes just feel like, I may as well just stay down on the track. But if you do that, that's when the real shame comes. Letting the fall win the race rather than you getting up and running again. My word for you this morning, and more importantly, I believe God's word, is this. Get up. Get up and run. Forget about people who have wronged you. Forget about, as Paul said, forget about what lays behind. You can't change it. Just run for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You, no matter how many times you've been knocked down, no matter how many times you feel like just staying down, you still have a race that God has given you to run. And you have to finish that race, and you have to finish it well. Go to Philippians 1.6. It's back just a couple of pages from where you were earlier. Does Philippians 1.6 in your Bible say, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day you fall and start flopping on the track? don't think that's what it says. He who began a good work in you will (laughs) carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When is that day? When you finished your race. And Jesus takes you to be with him forever, never to have any pitfalls ever again. As I was putting this message together, I was reminded of a story early in the Gospels of the New Testament, a time when Jesus looked his disciple Peter right between the eyes, and he said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times this day before the cock crows. Of course, Peter denied that that would ever happen, but then he also denied him three times before the cock crew. But notice what Jesus said to him when he, when he said to him, Peter, you're going to do this. It's going to happen before the cock crows. Three, uh, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. Notice what else he said to him. He said, but Peter, I have prayed for you. And after you are restored, in other words, after you get back up, strengthen your brothers. I still have a purpose for you, Peter. I I still have a race that only you can run. And we all know, we all know that Peter, he was the rock upon which the church was built. That was an important race for him to run. What that says to me today is that every one of us need to get back into the race that God has called us to, no matter what's happened to put us down on the track. So as I close every Sunday, let me close this way. Can you only imagine what it would be like if every one of us in this room today acted upon the gifts, the abilities, the talents, and the experience that God has given us and get back into the race? Can you only imagine forgetting what is behind, using excuses Like, I've done my part down through the years. Let someone else pick up the slack. Or excuses like, isn't that why we hired you, pastor? 
or excuses like, isn't that why we hired Melissa so she could work with the kids? Well, if that's if you have been tempted to use any of those as an excuse, and I pray you haven't, but just in case you have, I'll save you the trouble of making an appointment with, with me to answer those questions for you. I'll just tell you right here and now. First of all, you didn't hire me. God called me. God called me. Just like he's called each and every one of us to do the work of ministry. What is my job? My job is to give you the equipment to do the work of ministry and to do it effectively. At the top of that list is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We have some wonderfully talented people, gifted people. We have a lot of people who have, who have experienced a lot of things, and I still believe that experience is probably the best teacher. But friends, without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, you won't be able to run the race that God has called you to effectively. You won't be able to finish it strong. You won't be able to have a kick as you come toward the end. Here's the other thing. If you've used those excuses, isn't that why we hired you, Pastor? I don't have your skills. Melissa doesn't have your skills. Neither of us have your experiences. And the same can be said about each of you having, not having my skill or my experience or Melissa's skill or experience. Again, my calling is to train you, God's saints, to do the work of ministry. But most importantly, again, we have the empowering of the Holy Spirit of God to make us effective. And so my question to you as the worship team comes is, do you believe that? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit can use even you? you believe He can use you, Caleb? You think He can soothe those anxieties you're having? I'd be just like you. I'd have them. I have anxiety every time I come to this pulpit on a Sunday. If I didn't, I'd be scared to death because then I would know it was me and not God wanting to speak through me. Friends, I hope you hear my heart in this this morning. I, because I, I realize that it, it, it's much easier, it's much more thrilling for us to see the Holy Spirit knock someone out or, or cause someone to, to speak in a language that no one else understands. I, I call it the ooh-ah doctrine. We like the oohs and the ahs. Spirit moving in supernatural works of healing and miracles, life-transforming work. I, I understand those things are so cool to see, but friends, those giftings only become effective when we put them to the use for which God has called each one of us and enabled and equipped each one of us to do and to do effectively. So my last statement is this. Can you only imagine what it would be like to see our entire church family <laughs> acting upon each of our calling, each of our purposes. Boy, it'd be something to see. And God, that's my prayer. My, my prayer is for the kingdom of God because I know how how your kingdom, God, would be 
built and, and greatly enhanced if every one of us would act on our calling and our purpose. But Lord, as the pastor of this church family, the most exciting part for me in this looking at spiritual things in this life and in this reality is to see the reward and the blessing that would come to each and every one of us when we act on that calling and purpose. Eyes not seen nor ear heard all that you're preparing for us, God. And I believe that you, in that preparation, are not just talking about eternity, God, but you're talking about the here and now. And God, my heart's desire for this church family is to see each and every one of us experience the blessing, the supernatural fulfillment of knowing and doing what you have called us to do. So dear Jesus, this morning I am asking that your Holy Spirit that he would come in his presence and his power to motivate us, God, to make ourselves available for your service. God, I'm thankful for the race that you've called me to. But I got to tell you, God, I wasn't counting on everything that this race has revealed to me. I was hoping, God, that it would be easy. That it would be a race that didn't involve pitfalls and stumbling blocks. And I think that's probably true of each one of us in this room. But Lord, what I've come to understand is that through every pitfall, through every stumbling block, you've given me an experience, Lord, that can be used to help others who experience those same types of pitfalls along their journey. And Lord, my prayer for me and for everyone in this room this morning is that we would finish strong. That we would find the spiritual stamina, Lord, to come to the understanding that if we're still alive and breathing earthly air, you still have a purpose and a calling that you want us to fulfill. And Lord, last time I checked just a few minutes ago, that includes every one of us in this room. I'd like for you to stand to your feet this morning. And I, Jacob, I know I had another song that we were going to sing, but you guys are following the leading of the Spirit and that chorus of that song that we sang earlier, you're playing it. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. As we're standing to our feet this morning, if you really mean that, <laughs> if you really mean it, I want you to sing it. Not to me, not to this worship team, but I want you to sing it to Jesus. Because in singing it to Jesus, you're telling him, it's going to be worth it all when I hear you say, well done. Well done. How many of you want to hear that this morning?
Here, let's sing it together. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. Just one glimpse of His dear face, all sorrow will erase. Here's the part. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. I think you can sing it better than that. Let's sing it again. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of His dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. I was telling Doug that before the service this morning when we were discussing that song. That song was written in 1940, by the way. It's what we call an OBG, an oldie but goodie. I grew up hearing that song, and whenever I hear it or whenever I sing it, my mind is taken back to a grain truck heading to an elevator in Satana, Kansas. My grandfather driving, my grandmother on the other side, with her eyes closed, her hands raised toward heaven, tears running down her cheeks, singing, it will be worth it all. Yeah, that tugs at me, but... It doesn't tug at me near as much as knowing today she's up there saying it was worth every moment. Keep plugging away, Terry. Keep plugging away. It's going to be worth it. And I believe that to the core of my being. Dear Jesus, help us to run the race. Help us to finish strong. And God, when we stand before you, I know it's going to be worth it for every one of us. Whatever the price we paid, whatever the training, whatever the discipline that was required, it's going to be worth it. Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts, lives, in Jesus' name. Amen.